I ask that you uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became a dis- became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper, upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. 
I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us here to worship you. To worship you through our songs, to worship you through our giving, and now to worship you as we all submit ourselves to your word. Lord, we ask that your word would thunder clearly here tonight. Lord, take this familiar passage and use it to build up in us courage and faith in you, the promise-keeping God. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. It used to be uh, that weather could impact uh, your ability to uh, watch something on television, uh, particularly if you had a, a satellite dish, and I'm not sure if the technology has improved at all or that's still a problem that uh, everyone is suffering from. Uh, but I, I seem to recall uh, going to people's houses and they had satellite TV and, and uh, if there was a storm or something coming through, uh, the, the signal would be impacted and, and the message uh, would be transmitted uh, somewhat, um, uh, not as clearly or not as pronounced as it might otherwise have been. And one of the reasons uh, that I've appreciated as I've studied the book of Daniel with you is just how appropriate this message is to us. I think the, the cultural moment that the church finds herself in may perhaps help make the, the message of, of Daniel be heard more clearly by the church. Sort of like when the weather conditions clear up and suddenly the, the, the satellite signal can come through in all its strength. Now this is not to say that the Holy Spirit uh, is somehow dependent upon cultural conditions to get, its, get his message across. I mean, he can break through the, the densest fog. And I'm not saying that God's word is uh, unclear or insufficient in any way. I'm simply suggesting that uh, perhaps God chooses to work through our context to prepare us to receive or comprehend uh, uh, the word more clearly. And I would put to you that in the providence of God, we are being prepared, uh, better prepared, to understand the message uh, of Daniel and, and to understand what the Bible means when it refers to the people of God as strangers and exiles and aliens, as 1 Peter 2 does. 
We are exiles and aliens, regardless of our position as Christians within the culture. Whether we experience uh, great influence or whether we have little influence, it doesn't matter. The Apostle Peter was not calling uh, his fellow Christians uh, exiles and, and, and aliens because of their small number in the empire, but he was calling them exiles because of their new nature. If you're a Christian, then uh, by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, you have been called out of spiritual darkness and you've been given a new nature and new affections. Uh, you have a new love for the things of, of God. You've been granted a new citizenship that is in heaven, even as you live in this world. Now, this has always been true, whether the church has felt it consciously or not. Now, while there's been times that the church has experienced greater cultural influence, uh, even then, consciously or not, it was never in the truest sense home. It was still living in a world that was and is at enmity with God. Now, there is, I think, a growing awareness in this country uh, that the world is tilting. Uh, many uh, Western countries have already realized this fact, but the reality is that we as, as Christians, uh, uh, we are, are realizing or feeling our exile more keenly as, as the culture shifts and the church's place within the culture shifts as well. And I think that this uh, uh, makes us more receptive to hearing this message of Daniel. Now, this past week, I read an article uh, by Steve McAlpine writing for the Gospel Coalition in Australia entitled, two stage, ex stage Two Exile, Are You Ready For It? And in this article, McAlpine makes the point that the Western church uh, uh, previously thought that it was in exile that consisted of the, the church's cultural marginalization. So exile looked like the church being pushed to the sidelines, being ignored, not being invited to the, the, the party. And the solution to this cultural exile, this stage one exile, seemed obvious. We need to be relevant. We need to engage the culture. We need to lay aside theological language. But the problem he was arguing in this article, uh, was sta uh, this understanding of stage one exile, is that it's left us totally unprepared for, for the manifestation of exile we are now about to experience, stage two exile. In stage two exile, exile takes on a different feel. Instead of, uh, of the major cultural players ignoring the church and pushing the church to the sidelines, it's interested in, in bringing the church in the public square, but not to hear it, but instead, and these are his words, in order to flay it, in order to expose its real and alleged abuses, in order to render the church naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up before the statue of gold while everyone else is groveling and going, Psst, kneel down for goodness sake. It's officials conspiring with the king to show that Daniel's act of praying towards Jerusalem three times per day is not simply an archaic and foolish hope, but it is, uh, it's a very threat to the order of nicety and the new moral order that will hold it together. That's what stage two exile looks like, according to Steve McAlpine. And McAlpine goes on to say that a pri the primary characteristic that the church needs in, uh, as we face an exile like this is courage. It will mean, upon hearing the king's command, 
that uh, no one can pray to any god save the king for 30 days, that we will then go into our room, get down on our knees with our windows open to Jerusalem, and we will defy the king even as our accusers hunt us down. McAlpine points out Babylon, or the world, is interested not in trying to outthink us, merely to overpower us. Apologetics and new ways of doing church don't cut it in Babylon, he writes, only courage under fire will. So how do we ready ourselves? How do we fortify ourselves for exilic living that looks like us, like, like this? Because I think unless the Lord does something miraculous, this is the direction we're heading in. So what does it look like to be prepared for this? How do we arm ourselves for living in exile that looks like this? I think that Daniel can help us here. Our chapter tonight shows that the living, sovereign God is able to deliver his people even from the lion's den of Babylon. And it's by seeing that there is no land so distant, there is no pit so deep or so dangerous that the Lord cannot work deliverance uh, out of that we come to see how we're to conduct ourselves in exile and what our confidence is as we live in exile. So for our purpose this evening, uh, we'll be tracing this by looking at four chambers. The Senate chambers, the King's chambers, Daniel's chambers, and the Lion's chambers. Our account this evening begins by taking us into the halls of power in Babylon, now under the rule of the Medes and Persians. When we looked at, at Daniel 5 a few weeks ago, we saw how the Medo-Persian forces had besieged Babylon while the king and his nobles were foolishly feasting. And Daniel 6 tells us that now that the Medes and Persians are in charge, they've begun a government restructuring. Darius the king has appointed 120 satraps, and above their local leaders, and above them he's appointed uh, three uh, high officials or administrators. And Daniel was one of these privileged, empowered three. Now by this point, Daniel was likely quite old, probably in his late 70s or early 80s. It's been about 60 years since Daniel was plucked from his homeland by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord had protected Daniel, not only in in Babylon, but also uh, as the regime changed and now things were under the eyes of, of Darius, the Lord had protected him. And Darius had taken notice of Daniel. He had recognized that Daniel possessed a great wisdom, and so he planned to make him prime minister of the kingdom. Now, the fact that this lowly prisoner of war, I mean, Daniel comes as as this uh, snotty-nosed teenager to Babylon, and he ascends now uh, likely to the position of prime minister could only be attributed to the fact that God was protecting him. That, That message is totally clear in Daniel. There's no one else who's to get credit. But it's not only Daniel, or not only the Lord who is watching Daniel carefully. His colleagues have also taken notice of Daniel and caught word of Darius' intentions to uh, elevate Daniel above them. And needless to say, uh, their first response is not to go to Daniel's Amazon wish list and order him a congratulatory present. That's not at all what they're thinking. I mean, they, they don't want to get him a present. They want to give him the boot. So they set about to conspiring and, and, and forming plans, but there's one problem. They, they can't find anything, uh, any, any reason to turf Daniel. Uh, they, they can't find any excuse because he's morally upright, he, he's scrupulous, he's a man of integrity. They can't find any dirt on the guy at all. 
The only thing that they think, maybe this is our opportunity, is if they, if, if they look at Daniel's devotion to God. Maybe there is their opening. And so they're going to take advantage of it. Once they devised a plan to get rid of Daniel, the high officials and the satraps, uh, they make their way from their offices and they hurry into the, the king's chambers and they set their plan in motion. There's no mistaking that this is a bloodthirsty conspiracy. All the officials came by agreement, verse 6 tells us, to the king. I mean, if I'm the king, I'm thinking that this probably tips me off to something, you know, being weird. Because uh, when do uh, that many politicians all agree on anything? But they're like, we've got a great plan. Sign off on it right here. And the king says, okay. So not only ha have they re uh, reverse engineered this plan to get rid of innocent Daniel, but as they come to the king, they, they misrepresent the plan they're putting before him. They're saying, king, we're all agreed. We're all agreed. Just sign here. But obviously, Daniel has not agreed to this plan. The policy said for 30 days, no one was to pray to any God or any man except Darius. Clearly, Daniel has not signed off on such a policy. You may remember that uh, in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced a similar problem. There, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, passed a law that demanded that everyone in Babylon, including the people of God, were to worship the gold statue that he had set up. So on that occasion, the empire commanded false worship, false worship. But here, the king has presented a law which decrees that the people of God are, are not to do what they're supposed to be doing. He, he's forbidding true worship. Right? It, it, would, it would be like a, a local official somewhere saying to, to a Christian, worship, uh, Daniel 3 would be like, worship Allah or die. Daniel 6 is saying, if we catch you reading your Bible, we're going to stone you to death. Now, we don't know why the king signed this law. Could have been for any number of reasons. Perhaps it was vanity. Uh, hey, I, I get to be God for 30 days. That sounds like a good deal. Or maybe it was political expediency. Maybe he thinks, here's our opportunity to, to unify uh, the empire as everyone prays to me. Or perhaps it was just thoughtlessness. He didn't think through all the ramifications of this new law. Ultimately, the, the, the reasons as the outcome. Darius has unwittingly given the, the, the conspirators the tools that they need to get rid of Daniel. But when Daniel heard the news that the law had been passed, he retired to his chambers to pray. Now the details in verse 10 are significant for us in, to understand what's going on. So look closely at verse 10 with me if you would. There's five features of Daniel's response that I wish to highlight quickly for you. First, uh, the fact that Daniel is deliberate. The author of Daniel wants us to see that Daniel is deliberate in prayer because he tells us that Daniel knew the law had been passed and he knew the consequences when he went home to pray. This was a deliberate act of obedience to God. He knew the potential cost and he did it anyway. He went to pray to the Lord. Secondly, notice Daniel's frequency in prayer. He prays three times a day. Right? He, he, he is committed to this. He's coming before the Lord regularly. Third, notice that it was consistent. He's consistent in prayer. This, is free, uh, this frequent, deliberate prayer, it was his same practice as uh, before the law came into place. 
Just because there's this law that threatens his life uh, has affected him in, in no way. He still goes to pray. Fourthly, don't miss the small phrase which tells us that uh, Daniel prayed and he gave thanks before his God. Thanks. Now, that's, that's not a small thing. We uh, might imagine, at least I could imagine, if I were in Daniel's shoes, I could imagine pleading with God. I could imagine begging God. I could imagine uh, petition, petitioning God, saying, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, stop them. All those things. Right? Perhaps those were in his prayers too. But even as elderly Daniel is spending his last years in exile, even, uh, and even then he can't get rest from his enemies, what does he do? He prays and he gives thanks. Now I imagine, and perhaps the older brothers and sisters can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, one of the temptations uh, as you grow older is uh, to maybe grumble a little bit, especially as you look at the conditions of, of things uh, of the world around you. But notice how elderly Daniel, despite a, a great deal in his situation not to be liked, notice how he responds. He goes to the Lord and he gives thanks. Fifthly, he's trusting. He's faith-filled. He trusts the promises of God. When Daniel goes to his chambers, he throws the windows open, and he throws the windows open in what direction? The windows are open toward Jerusalem. And this isn't just a matter of preference. It's not just that Daniel liked this view better, uh, but it displays a confident expectation in the promise-keeping God. Turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Kings 8, if you would. That'll help us understand how this is the case. Many years prior, King Solomon, uh, when he was dedicating the temple in Jerusalem, he prayed to God. First Kings 8, if you'd skip down to about verse 46, he, he, he's praying to God and he asks, among other things, that if the people of God were to sin and to be sent into exile for their sin, that if they should repent and pray toward this land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen. And if they're to pray toward the house that Solomon has built uh, for, for the Lord's name, verse 48, and then, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayers and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So here is Solomon many years prior saying, Lord, if your people would, would sin and be sent into exile, if they would turn to you, as symbolized by turning to the place where you have made your presence uh, to dwell, then forgive them. Be merciful toward them. Think for a second all the things that would perhaps argue against Daniel praying in this manner. Was he in exile? Yeah, he was. How long had he been there? A long time, probably 60 years. Maybe he's been praying the same prayer for 60 years. Lord, be merciful to us. Here are our prayers. How things look at the moment for Daniel personally? Well, they didn't look very good. He knows uh, that, that uh, people are watching him and they're seeking to take him down. What's the condition of the temple like that he's praying toward? That was, was the direction he was facing. The temple is in ruins. It's a pile of stone. The gold has been stripped. I mean, its magnificence is gone. The place is demolished. And in the dark days of exile, when all seemed bleak and the promises of God might otherwise be questioned, Daniel holds a confidence in the promise-keeping character of God. 
He has this this deep conviction that none of the promises of God go unfulfilled. That's why he prays. That's why he risks going to the Lord. He has faith that the Lord's promises stand. Well, not surprisingly, as Daniel prays, his political adversaries spring their trap and they show their cunning uh, by going to the king sort of indirectly. Oh, king, you wouldn't uh, imagine going back on the law you just signed, would you? And he says, no, no, of course not. The law stands. And they say, well, Daniel is praying three times a day. He doesn't pay any attention to you. To the lions, he's got to go. Now, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was furious when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, uh, disobeyed his law, Darius is quite distressed uh, that Daniel is in this position. Yet he can think of no plan, no loophole to save Daniel, and so uh, uh, Daniel's enemies come to him and say, okay, no dilly-dallying for Daniel to the lion's den, he's got to go, and, Nebuchadnezzar, and Darius has to send Daniel to the lion's den. He expresses his hope that, that, that God would, would save him, and then he seals the tomb with his royal seal, which would say that no one can tamper with this. Not even Darius could get in. They would know if something sneaky had gone on. And after quite a, a restless evening, as soon as the sun breaks uh, o- over the, the horizon, Darius dashes to the lion's den, and he cries out in this loud, worried voice to Daniel, and not expecting, perhaps, a, that he should get a reply, but there it is, right? O king, live forever, Daniel cries. God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and I'm safe. God had kept Daniel safe amongst these beasts. Well, why did this happen? Why this deliverance? Well, look at Daniel's answer in verse 22. Daniel says he was delivered because, so we're seeing here a reason, he was blameless before God and before the king in this manner in this matter. He had done nothing wrong and God was vindicating him. But then skip down to verse 23. The narrator tells us that he protected amidst the lions because, reason, he had trusted in his God. Now we have to say two things about this. First, uh, I, I don't think that these two explanations are at odds or in conflict with one another. Uh, but uh, So Daniel was blameless before God and before the king in spite, of his, in spite of the threats to his life because he trusted that God held his life in his hands. So I think the first reason, his blamelessness before the king, is explained by his trust in the, in the Lord. That more fundamental reason. But secondly, we need to say that we can't infer uh, from verse 23 that Daniel was spared because he trusted God, that if he had not been spared from this particular trial, that it would have shown that somehow Daniel's faith uh, was defective in some way, or that he had somehow sinned, that there was something to blame for him. And we certainly can't assume uh, 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 that if we undergo some particular hardship in our lives, that that reflects that our faith is not strong enough. It is, it's not an obvious one-to-one correspondence. Hebrews 11, which we... Uh, the same passage which says it's Daniel's faith that stopped the mouth of lions, also says that a similar faith was found in those who were mocked and flogged and sawn in two. So we can't look at at Daniel's example here and and say that this is a promise that if you have faith, God will deliver you in this exact way. Nevertheless, here at the mouth of the lion's den, Daniel's faith in God was vindicated and the Lord God was sending a message to all his people 
that he watches over and he protects those who trust him, even in the lion's den of Babylon. And just in case, people might suppose that Daniel had escaped because he had slipped in uh, to the lion's den between the lion's meals. Verse 24 tells us that the men who accused Daniel, and it appears there were quite a few of them, that they were thrown into the lion's den with their families and they were devoured immediately. The message is here, uh, clear here too, that God's enemies and the enemies of God's people would not go unpunished. So the pagan king responds to God's mighty protection of Daniel by declaring to his entire kingdom. Here we have another broadcast where he says that Daniel's God, the king of heaven and earth, he is one who is able to deliver and to rescue and to save his people. So here God works through the wicked plot of, of Daniel's adversaries to place his praise on the mouth of a pagan king. And then our passage and the first half of Daniel closes with these words. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, Daniel hadn't just spent a night in the lion's den, but really he had spent his entire adult life surrounded by lions in some sense, being surrounded by wicked, wicked pagans who sought his life, and yet the Lord brought him through, just as he brought him through that night in the lion's den. So, so here, at the end of this section of Daniel, we see Daniel like a, a prize fighter after uh, many long, hard rounds, standing there, still on his feet. Only unlike the prize fighter, it's very clear in the book of Daniel that this is not owing to Daniel's strength, but this is owed to the strong arm of the Lord who protected Daniel even in exile. So the living, sovereign God delivers faithful Daniel from the lion's den, but he also protects him and prospers him in exile. And from this, we learn something about our, what our exilic conduct, what our behavior, what our lives should look like, and what our confidence is as we live in exile here. So first, uh, what our conduct should look like. Daniel's held up as an example to us of how we should conduct ourselves by, while living as exiles and strangers. Daniel 6 is a picture for us of how we, as spiritual exiles, should conduct ourselves in the world. Now, please listen to me. I'm not saying this story is merely example or only example, but I am saying that it does provide us with an example. And to overlook this, to ignore this, is to impoverish the, the message of the chapter. Now, the story is not just saying, dare to be a Daniel, but it would be foolish to think that we should not in some way strive to be faithful like Daniel was. Right, Daniel is, is being held up as someone worthy of copying, worthy of imitating. Certainly, the author of Hebrews thinks so by including Daniel there. Living as exiles requires a sort of Daniel-like courage, not only just to avoid the defilements of the world, not to, just to say we're not going to do certain things, but living in exile requires a courage to insist upon, to persist in true worship and obedience, even when the cost is high. Yet, um, if, uh, maybe you know those, uh, those motivational posters that would be in the school uh, guidance counselor's office. Okay, if, if we're to think in terms of what was the defining characteristic of Daniel that we should emulate, you know, those posters which would say uh, things like honesty and effort and things like that. Well, under Daniel's picture in those big block letters, it, it wouldn't say stand out, it wouldn't say courage, but what we would see under a picture of Daniel in the lion's den, we would see the word faith or trust God. 
That's, that's what's held up for us in, in Daniel to, to, to emulate. Dan, Daniel is worthy of commendation. He's deserving of, of emulation. He's deserving to be copied in the manner that he trusts God. And as we live our lives amidst uh, the unbelieving world as spiritual exiles, our lives ought to reflect uh, the faith of Daniel, a faith that trusts God so much that courage is sure to follow. You see, uh, faithful, exilic living like Daniel models for us calls for a trust in the Lord and in the Lord's promises and in the Lord's character, a, a, a trust that is stronger than the fear of the world's condemnation and scorn. Daniel thought that it was a greater thing to plead the promises of God in prayer than to win the favor of or to avoid the displeasure of the surrounding culture. Even in, in the bleak winter of exile, even when there was potentially reasons for, for questioning the promises of God, Daniel trusted that the promises of God were of greater value and, and offered a greater security than anything the world could offer. Now for us, that might look like that you uh, trust so firmly in God that when your employer insists that you work uh, on Sunday so that you miss worship, you'd consider it a safer thing. You'd consider it a wiser thing. You'd consider it a better thing to say to your boss, no, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but I can't miss the opportunity to worship with God's people and to hear from God and worship. And, and you do this uh, because you trust God with whatever the consequences from that act of obedience might be. Or, or when a spouse or a family member tells you, well, why are you reading uh, that useless Bible all the time? Or going to, to that men's group or that uh, women's group? Why the, the dumb waste of time? But you do it even though you, you receive the dirty looks and receive the, the snarky comments because that you trust obedience to God is the better course. It is the safer course. It might look like opening your mouth to speak winsomely about Jesus, uh, to, to evangelize, to, uh, even though you know someone's going to respond by saying, look at this narrow-minded, exclusivistic person with all their talk of sin and a cross and hell. But you speak anyway in an act of obedience, not in an obnoxious way, but quietly, unassumingly like Daniel, because you trust that whatever it might cost you, God offers a greater security, a greater comfort, a greater promise. Friend, is, it, is a resolute confidence in the promises of God, even under duress, something that you aspire to? Is your vision of, of the future year, if you're saying, what, where do I want to grow? What do I want to look like? Does that involve just having a, a more confident trust in the promises of God that will, will produce a courage in you that would say, I, I will obey even if it costs me something? Because I trust, the, I trust God and I trust his promises so much. Is that your prayer? Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, well, it's easier said than done. Okay, Daniel is Daniel. I'm not Daniel. He's a man of courage. Uh, me, not so much. Uh, and um, I get that, right? Uh, I'm going to assume that most of us are naturally weaker, naturally less courageous than Daniel. But we've got to keep two things in mind. First of all, that that the faith of Daniel is, is a gift. It comes from God. He provides it, and he's pleased to give it. But secondly, it's something that Daniel did not. Not only do we have the example of how God rescued and delivered Daniel, carrying him through and preserving him through exile, but we have a greater confirmation that God shall rescue and deliver us through our exile. 
We, ha- we have what, what God has done in Christ. Look at how Jesus entered the world and took on our humanity. How he lived a life of, of faith, totally relying upon God, trusting the promises of God, and demonstrating perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. Think how despite his, his total integrity, he had accusers like Daniel who conspired against him, conjured up charges against him, though he had done nothing wrong. And how Jesus, though he knew his accusers were coming from, for him, he went off to pray three times, interestingly, to his heavenly father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, like Daniel, who was brought before a ruler who, despite his attempts, was not able to satisfy the calls for his life. And after Jesus was hoisted up on a cross, he was plunged into the ground like Daniel, being buried and sealed in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. You see, here's the difference. While Daniel went into the ground and emerged without a scratch, Jesus was put in the ground a bloody and bruised corpse. Though he himself was was blameless before God, he was put in the grave, dead, having been mauled, having been ravaged upon the cross as the punishment for our sin which he took upon himself, was poured out. And only then was he sealed in the ground. But despite this, Jesus, too, was brought forth from that grave, brought forth by his Father, resurrected, vindicated, like Daniel. Though he emerged from the ground with marks upon his body, They were the marks, they were the wounds which now bear witness from the throne room of God that those who are joined to him by faith, uh, for those who are joined to him by faith, there is nothing in this world. There is no place you can go, there is no enemy you might face, there is no trial you might endure, even death itself, that God cannot deliver you through and from. In the article I mentioned earlier, he's... uh, he said that as exiles in our stage two exile, we're going to need courage under fire. Well, where's that going to come from? Where is the courage to press forward in obedience to God going to come from, even if it's going to cost us our jobs, our standing, our reputation, our businesses? It doesn't just come from muscling it up within ourselves. It comes Uh, from a faith that looks to and rests in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author of Hebrews says, after he highlights the faith of the Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11, including Daniel there, he begins Hebrews 12 by pointing us to Jesus, who faithfully endured the shame, who faithfully endured the scorn, who faithfully endured the cross, the worst that the world had to throw at him. But he was delivered, he was vindicated, he was raised up, and he is glorified. So if I belong to Jesus by faith, if you belong to Jesus by faith, we place our confidence in the strong arm of the Lord, that no matter what faithfulness might cost us, no matter where it might take us, no matter what obedience might require of us, the same sovereign Lord, the same strong arm, will carry us and protect us and rescue us, even through death itself. That's where the courage for true spiritual exiles comes from. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize 
the fearsome nature of, of our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, we think of particularly tonight how um, the world would seek, or the world seeks to, to live for other things. It, it would not uh, uh, have us sing or praise the name of Jesus. It would not have us declare Christ as, as the almighty king. Lord, our declaration of love for and worship of Jesus puts, a, uh, puts, a, puts us at odds with the world. And so, Lord, this is good news for spiritual exiles like us. We need, to be, we, we need the comfort of knowing that you can carry us. You will carry us. You will bring us through. You will deliver us no matter how, and no matter where we are, no matter how deep the pit, no matter how dangerous the situation that because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, we have the assurance that even as we pass through death itself, you will vindicate us and bring us safely to yourself. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name.